as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Luke Mulch, welcome to the podcast. Hey, what's up, Vance? How are you doing, man? So you are my uh, jujitsu um, at my same gym. We are not anywhere close on the same levels. You are a brown belt. I am a white belt, but you are a good dude. You are a guy that can whip me easily, but instead what you do is you allow me to try and put you in a in a choke or to hold you down and then you get out of it. So you you improve by giving making yourself the most vulnerable. I have always respected that. I like rolling with you. You're a challenge and I respect you. But in addition to that, you are a nurse and uh, you were one of the first people that I saw out there collecting masks and getting ready for coronavirus. And so I have been very interested to hear what you have seen, how it's gone, and uh, just talk about what your what your perspective on coronavirus is. Sure, man. Uh, appreciate the uh, kind jujitsu words. Um, I can touch on that real quick too about you know taking it easy or whatever. I, I, I don't see that, man. I think you guys all uh, you guys all come pretty hard, man. So it doesn't really benefit me to just go uh, full throttle and use all 250 pounds of my body to just crush people all the time. So like when I roll with you, for instance, man, you are getting a lot better and you're improving. Um, don't sell yourself short, man. You guys, you guys, all that gym are, are really, really badasses, And I look forward to getting back to it at some point. Um, but back to the nurse thing, man, what's my perspective? Um, well, I guess, first of all, uh, I could, paint a picture of kind of what what my job is um so i know you had oh that's the other person i did listen to a podcast with uh, steve ernst um who is also an icu nurse and also does jujitsu with us i thought he was awesome man i listened to it at work actually um so basically man we're going in and taking care of the sickest of sick patients right um and the things that we provide in the ICU that uh, other floors couldn't provide, like a regular uh, medical surgical floor or a telemetry floor, would be we can offer um, a, a better ratio, uh, nurse to patient ratio, number one. Um, but what we really do is provide services like ventilators. I shouldn't say services. We provide ventilation um, with a ventilator, and then we also do things with medications that other floors can't do. Um, we do things with uh, what we call vasopressors, which are uh, medication drips, and we titrate those basically to um, raise or lower blood pressure. So you have vasopressors to raise blood pressure, and then we actually have medications that lower blood pressure. And then we also sedate patients and put them on ventilators. So we're tinkering with several sedatives to try to get a patient to be relaxed and not remember anything about being on a ventilator. And then we're also dealing with uh, uh, their hemodynamics. Maybe their heart rate's too high, their blood pressure's too low. Those are kind of the things we encounter a lot of. Um, so Typically, we have anywhere from one to three patients. So when I come in to work, a uh, typical day would be I go get kind of my supplies that I'm going to need, stethoscope, 
um, and just other various things, scissors, X, Y, Z. And then I'm going to get a overview of what's going on in the ICU. Who are our most critical patients? Um, is there a violent patient on the floor? Um, are we not letting family in for a particular patient? Things like that. Um, and then... Wait, wait. I mean, you just threw something in there that, like, I, I almost started laughing. Like, you actually have to worry. Are there patients that might attack the people that are trying to give them medical care? Oh, 100%. Um, I came in just two weeks ago, actually. And, and typically, I'm the nurse that they give these patients to. Um, though, I will say at this particular hospital I'm working at now, it, it's not as bad. Um, but oftentimes we'll have patients, um, it's very common for a patient to be restrained, first of all. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, so so if you're ventilated, the chances of you being restrained are very high. Um, that said, you're not going to really remember being restrained, okay? And and what actually happens <laughs> a lot of times is, which is, is actually good, a patient will, even when they're sedated, um, they will... The instinct is to reach up to your breathing tube, right? Your breathing tube is connected to a ventilator. And then the ventilator is the machine that sustains your life. But when you wake up, because sedatives are tricky, man. It is a ball game of keeping somebody down to the point where you can wake them up and, and talk to them. But you don't want them too awake. But you also don't want them what we call snowed, Right. Because what will happen is they wake up and their instinct is to pull their breathing tube out. And now all of a sudden, if your patient pulls their breathing tube out, they have um, sedatives running. Uh, you've probably heard of uh, propofol from Michael Jackson. That's what he was getting to sleep. If you have that running, that suppresses your ability to breathe. And now all of a sudden, you just took out your lifeline. So alarms will go off and you've got to like throw some other oxygen via like a face mask on before these people die. I mean, this is something that happens a lot. We call it self-extubation. Um, so to counteract that, you tie somebody's wrist down. But to your point, you're talking about just a straight up violent patient. Absolutely. Uh, somebody could be an alcoholic that's withdrawing or perhaps they had a stroke that's kind of altering their mental state. Um and you have to tie not only their arms down, but their legs down. And then you have to have a nurse in there 24-7 to make sure they don't do anything stupid. And I've even gotten into several physical uh, confrontations with patients. Probably the most recent one is um, a patient was standing on, on a bed. He was a younger guy. He had a uh, full cardiac arrest, and he got resuscitated. And he went through this whole thing that I could tell you about. It's called um, hypothermic cooling where we purposely essentially raise the body or lower the body temperature of the patient for uh, 24 hours I want to say and then slowly rewarm them up so this guy went through this whole process so physically man he was he was a young strong kid um he would you know he was uh, totally coordinated but his mind he did not know where he was at and it got to the point um, he punched his mom in the room and then he punched, or at minimum, because I didn't quite see it, the lights were off, swung and hit a nurse to where her face was oh my God. on the side. So um, I'm like, 
click the lights on, you know, I hear this ruckus because security had actually just left because the dude freaked out uh, already. And security's like, ah, everything's fine. They got the kid back in the bed. Within five seconds, he's back up uh, flinging bombs at people. So I, uh, this is where, like, my experience with jujitsu comes in handy. But I grabbed that dude. I reached across. I almost, like, bear-hugged him because he's standing on the bed. Reached across, grabbed his far side arm, and then switched arms and grabbed his wrist. And then went kind of underneath his legs and almost like you're cradling a baby and then elevated him, slammed him and then pinned his uh, wrist to his body and then he is looking at me, bro, like completely flexed like saliva coming out of his mouth wanting to like tear my head off and I'm like get the restraints and his mom's like, oh, his wrists are bruised I don't want the restraints on and at that point it's like, ma'am, I don't give a shit we're, we're restraining them, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, we deal with violence. But uh, uh, I veered off course a little bit. But, I mean, uh, I just I, – it's my fault. I, I'm the one that called it off there because I got to tell you that there's no part of my day that's going on right now where there's even the slightest uh, chance that that would happen, right? Because <laughs> I am isolated. Right, right, I'm right. coronavirus lockdown. And right, I think man, about, I like, you're going into work – and you're dealing with with that that's that's the level of people that you could be around. What is going on right now with coronavirus? Um so right now man, so if you look at our ICU, right? Uh it's 20 beds, okay? Um and Essentially, on like the south side of our ICU, there's a string of ten, and on the other, there, then there's a hallway in the middle, and then there's ten more beds. So, just we we have, excuse me, we have one side of the hallway that's dedicated to either COVID patients or rule out COVID patients. Um, and I would say, you know, three four weeks ago, it was like one or two, and then, you know. I guess I guess it would be about three weeks ago it was you know five or six and now it's just that whole side. So the last two weeks it's pretty much just been that one side of the hallway with either confirmed or active cases of COVID. In which case, if they're in the ICU, they're in the ICU because they're either a rapidly declining, meaning they can't they can't oxygenate um, with. Uh, you know, just like a face mask or a nasal cannula, which we've actually been doing both. We've been putting nasal cannulas on, okay, and turning them to their max settings and then throwing on a, a mask as well over the top of that and then turning uh, oxygen onto that too. That's not something I've ever seen before, man. And I think the reason behind that is is, is because the other reason that these patients come to us is they're ventilated, meaning we have to manage this ventilator, okay? Um, but most of the patients that are positive in the ICU are all on uh, a ventilator. And unfortunately, um, the odds of them getting off that ventilator and surviving um, is very low about 80 to 85% that decline to the point where they need a ventilator don't get off and they end up dying. And, and 
I don't want to get into too many details about my actual hospital, but there has been there has been uh, a good handful of people that have died already from it. So I mean, it's definitely uh, it's it's definitely not a, a hoax, you know. And and I've worked to advance uh, like through a really bad flu season, and we don't have a whole hallway of patients lined up on ventilators just from the flu. You know what I mean? Um, so that's kind of where we're at. But so let me ask you, how like is it people that you would expect to be in the hospital? Is it overweight people, people that haven't taken care of their health, people that are older, or is it like you look around and it's just random, like like a whole bunch of car accidents just happened? That's a good question, man. Um, so my my brother actually asked me that same question. So I just went through and jotted the age uh, distribution. Um, nobody in their 20s, two in their 30s that um, don't really have a, a documented health history. Uh, um, and then it's just kind of like scattered throughout. I think we had one... 92 had a few in their 50s 40s 60s all over the board man but if you're going to talk about if i'm just visually looking at that person and look like are they healthy or not healthy i would say overall i'm not getting like marathon runners in there that's not to say that can't happen i just haven't seen it you know what i mean um I'm, i can only go off of what i've seen um but so man I, I, uh, I mean, just, just cutting straight to it, you and I both know a lot of guys that are working right now. They're driving trucks and they are delivering stuff. And then another, a lot of guys that aren't working. And, uh, you know, you're a healthcare professional that will be impacted if the disease spreads more. Do you want those guys to be able to be out there working because it doesn't look like they get sick enough to get into the hospital? Or does them out there participating in the economy put you at greater risk and more than you should be willing to, to have to endure? Um, I'm, I would say this. If, if going back to work and kind of opening everything up without you know any sort of precautions and there was you know um, a large spike of infections and people kept coming in, we would – we would be stretched to the, we would get stretched to the limit, but I think we could deal with it. Obviously, I would be probably exposed to more cases of COVID. Um, I can tell you right now, my hospital is already preparing for like the worst possible scenarios to where um, I would essentially, and all the other ICU nurses would act as kind of like almost like a manager for uh, nurses that aren't uh, traditionally ICU nurses. So I would have more or less like four nurses under me. Um, and then I would be responsible for managing the ventilators and just like taking care of any problem that might arise. That's kind of how it was framed to me. Um, we haven't, went over the X's and O's in that of that, but that's kind of, uh, and that's with the expectation. 
that that there are so many healthcare workers that will that have been infected by it because they've had to care for people that have it that there could be a drastic reduction in the number of nurses that are available. Say, say that one one more time. So you're saying that the that you have been trained based on uh, what happens if a whole bunch of healthcare workers get coronavirus because they've been exposed at so much higher of a rate than the normal people that would be running the hospital would get sick, and so you'd have less people to be able to manage. So you'd have to bring in new nurses from another place, or maybe that aren't normally uh, doing this so, type of work. So that's a good question. Sorry, I didn't really clarify that. So we have right now other areas of our hospital are actually. Um, low on their census. Um, so for example, we have a whole floor that takes, um, you know, elective surgery type patients. Um, and then overall, I would say people are trying to stay away from the hospital as much as possible. So if you look on every given day on a hospital, there'll be a surgery schedule and there'll be, I don't even know, 30, 40 patients on that surgery schedule. Those patients aren't there anymore. So we have nurses. We just don't have ICU nurses. A lot of our nurses right now are being furloughed, actually. Um, we've had, and I don't, I don't know if I want to get into this, but we've had administrators um, let go, too, because I, I assume we're in uh, financial trouble. I mean, I don't, I don't look at the books, but I mean, we've let several administrators go. We're furloughing nurses. The next thing to go is probably they're going to let some nurses go, you know? I don't know. It's kind of weird, man. It's like in certain areas of the hospital, it's a ghost town. But if you go to the emergency room in the ICU, it's a completely different story. Well, so uh, a family member of mine, I'm not sure she'd want me to talk about it, uh, was going through cancer treatment. And uh, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, coronavirus, you're going to have a weakened immune system. Maybe you should talk with your doctor about not doing it. And she was like, no, I've already gone partway through this radiation. They say they can keep it clean. We're separate. We're doing everything we can. I'm going to go forward with it. And the whole time I was super nervous, but now she's out on the other side. And I'm really glad that that's, that's just awesome, done man. with, you know. But yeah, what about all these aunt, people that have that have delayed these types of treatments? Are those kinds of things happening? Oh, 100%. I mean, 100%. Um, I think they're kind of viewing things in a different way. Like if you, if you really don't need something right away, we're, we're going to hold off, you know? Um, so overall surgeries are down. Like, like I told you, like our open heart surgery, um, area that come we reserved and half of that ICU. Did I touch on that? So the area that's now the coronavirus patients usually are reserved for people that had a uh, coronary uh, artery bypass uh, graft, right? A uh, bypass surgery. Um, so we don't have any of those now. There are very few, unless those patients are requiring like, like an immediate type surgery, we're not touching them because the risk of infection is just too high. Um, so... Yeah, definitely less less surgeries overall, and it's definitely impacting uh, those nurses as well. They're they're uh, like I said, not able to get a lot of work, which is kind of crazy, man. What, I mean, what is going on with people that are having heart attacks? Because it's not like people have have changed their health such that they don't have yeah, to go to the yeah, hospital yeah. and that so, kind of stuff. 
So for sure. So for if you do have a heart attack, there's usually two different ways. The first line of treatment, if you come in with an acute heart attack, you're going to get taken to the you're going to have an EKG. It's going to say, hey, this dude's got a um, infarction somewhere in his heart, meaning there is a, a vessel block. So what they would do is take you to the cardiac cath lab. What they do is stick a uh, catheter either in your radial, radial artery or um, into your groin and thread that through your vasculature up into your heart. And then they take a look around with a little camera on the end of this catheter and then they stent. You've heard of a cardiac stent. They put a little stent and open up that artery. Now, what happens, though, is a lot of times these people have such bad heart disease, you just can't. You can't do anything to fix it. That's when you would have to say, okay, I've got to open up their chest and do a coronary artery bypass graft. So if that was something that was 100% emergently needed, I'm sure we would probably do it. But that doesn't happen very frequently. Typically, if someone comes in with a heart attack, they will still take them to the cardiac cath lab. That's considered kind of like an emergency. That said, we've already discussed talking about alternative treatments uh, to the cardiac cath lab, which would be giving these patients, um, instead of taking them to the cath lab and deploying the stent and opening up the artery, we would give them a uh, thrombolytic, uh, which essentially is a medication that uh, will just bust up that clot. I mean, that's the ideal uh, ideal outcome, bust up that clot, and then blood flow is restored. Um, that works pretty well with strokes. I don't know how well it works with heart attacks because you've got to assume for the most part, you know, a lot of times those arteries are just clogged up with uh, uh, plaque and then just over time slowly close up and then you don't get blood flow. So a lot of these patients, you know, that need, say, an open heart surgery have experienced symptoms like shortness of breath for several months. Um, it's not necessarily that they're coming in with, you know, elephant standing on my chest, crushing chest pain and need surgery right away. They're just going to have to sit around and, you know, be short of breath more or less. So what? Um, oh, oh, go ahead. ahead. I was going to talk about kind of like what what's different about uh, dealing with these coronavirus patients instead of um, you know just kind of your typical day. But yeah, tell me about that. Well, so like, uh, and I know you talked about me like collecting all those masks and whatever. So kind of crazy, man. We were like. It's weird, and, I, and I'm not saying it's like where I work, because this was happening everywhere, but just the very, like, beginning, uh, you know, before, like, I th maybe we had one or two of these uh, COVID patients, man. Um, we're already, like, you know, rationing, like, these N95 respirators. So there's a different most people i don't know if most people know this but when i say ventilator i'm talking about machine that ventilates you with the breathing tube but the respirator is just more or less a face mask and um you can see sometimes you'll see people wear these at the store they have a band that goes back behind their neck and then one uh, around the top of their or back their head rather 
And then they have a little thing you can squeeze the bridge of your nose. And the idea is you create the seal where, you know, nothing can come in and affect you, infect you through the air. Um, but so like in my nursing career, bro, I've always been taught, hey, you get one mask every time you go in that room. Before you leave that room, there's a way you dispose of, you know, take off your gown and dispose of the mask. There's certain protocols you follow, man. This is a one-time use thing. So now um, all of a sudden they're saying, hey, you get one in the 95, you know, you're putting it in a brown bag, you're keeping it in your locker and you're breaking that bad boy back out. And we're all like, I mean, there was obviously some outrage from nurses. Like this is totally, you know, not uh, protecting us <laughs> because the bacteria is just going to live on the mask and move all over the place. Right. Um, it's a virus, said, right? And what's that? It's a virus, not bacteria. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a virus rather. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then we have other things, too. So, like, I think part of the problem is, and I don't know, but we didn't use a lot of N95. We use these capper uh, air sh or face shields uh, that sit in front of your face, and then they kind of bind to your neck, and then you kind of plug, uh, plug them into a battery pack, and they continuously uh, produce, like, airflow inside the uh, actual kind of helmet you're wearing with this face shield. And those face shields, you know, you're supposed to throw those away like uh, – I guess it's like once every shift, unless it gets soiled. So we're keeping these things, bro. Like, I've, I've still got one from like three weeks ago. Now, is it is it that they are rationing them so they have them in the future, or is it that they don't have enough right now and that this you know the storage room is almost empty? So that's a good question. So the N95s, they definitely, I, I think they definitely have some that they're reserving. Those face shields. As far as I understand, man, like uh, we don't we don't really have any. So we're we're seeing a lot more nurses ditch those because their integrity has kind of been compromised, and we're sticking to the face shields and then or not face shields but N95s rather. And then what we're doing um, is having them go get sterilized, and I don't even know the process for sterilizing them. But then they come back in another paper bag with our names on. And then that's our sterilized mask. I mean, it's man. UV light is probably the best thing you got. I mean, I wonder, it's just putting I think them out that's in sunlight. What doing, man. And, that, and I've read like articles about that. And uh, I, I've heard they kind of like damage their integrity, like filtration. I, the sun, by, like, pe people don't understand. So when I lived in Africa, uh, you would wash your dishes with whatever you could. You, you, I had like a lye soap. But even if you didn't, you would set the uh, like because you're washing it oftentimes in water that you haven't like boiled. But it the right. sunlight is so strong that you can even leave water on the on the edges of the of the plate and put it out in the sun, and the sun will clean all the water out, so you don't have to worry about contaminating that way. So like the sun oh, clears wild. all kinds of bacteria, all kinds of stuff out, but people also don't realize that like if you're talking about a fabric like you are the mask which is just wires that are just wound over top of each other with like some kind of polymer in between them that wears that stuff down in the same way that it wears the, the, uh, the disease on them. Right, right, right. Yeah, man. I don't know. You know, 
as far as what I can see on the mask, it looks okay. But obviously the studies are saying, hey, this isn't entirely. How many days okay. are you wearing a mask for? <laughs> um, so it's hard to say because like some weeks, like last week, I didn't get like COVID patients. So um, I was actually only wearing a regular surgical mask and then protective goggles. Um, that's kind of our uh, MO if we don't have COVID patients. Uh, when we're just like in the common area, we always have to have a face mask, which is great. Initially, we weren't even doing that, which, you know, it's not, it's not a great approach to try to uh, not sp spread infection. I mean, we pretty much, I'll say everybody I work with has done a great job, man. And we, uh, we are definitely on board with preventing infection. But just thinking about, like, before it really popped off, if you think about the fact that, hey, you might come in contact with a COVID patient, and now you as the nurse are asymptomatic and you're not wearing a mask, you're going to go take care of the next patient without a mask and potentially get them sick. I mean, that's a reality. That's why you see, like, these outbreaks in nursing homes or prisons or these, you know, very dense areas um, that aren't taking the proper precautions, man, they all get sick. Not to mention, like, in a nursing home, they're already all, you know, compromised for the most part, so. So, um, I, I worked on a cruise ship for a while, a small one, and uh, it, it, it was amazing how a disease could spread around a ship, just, just like lightning, and you'd never see it when you're living in a town, Right. Because you just don't see that like a disease spread through a place. So I think one of the great fears that people have is that there will be a series of things, a bunch of nursing homes or a, a couple of offices um, get it and then are now all need to come into the hospital. Do, what do you think of that? Is that something we should be afraid of? Or do you think like, nah, it's not going to come in at the, the tide didn't come in as much as we thought that it would come in? Uh, I hope there's no tide, bro. Like I'm, I'm ready for it. But, but yeah, I mean, if there's something particularly like locally, like all of a sudden, like a whole nursing home has an outbreak. I mean, they're, they're definitely gonna be flooding my hospital. I would say, you know what I mean? Um, that's a reality. And you, another thing you touched on is like, you know, so like we don't. I don't think. You know, you've heard these people like that, that don't think this is real. And the reason they don't think this real is real is because they're not living in areas like, like New York City, where they're loading up trucks full of dead bodies, man. They're living in central Illinois. The, the outbreak is not as prominent here, man. So when people like try to say this is the government trying to, uh, you know, take control of us, this and that. Bro, I just try to look at this stuff as logically as possible. You know what I mean? An outbreak happened in China. A bunch of freaking people died, okay? It came to the United States. We're taking steps to control the infection. A shit ton of people died, and the economy is wrecked. Now, when you look at it like that, man, you, and you can still sit here and tell me with a straight face that this is some government ploy. I mean, you're insane, man, And from my perspective. I, I think that you could make the the uh, the case that people are worried about that we thought it was going to be worse than it was and it doesn't seem that bad. The, I, and like I agree I, with that. 
And I agree with that. Okay. And I agree with that, but that's the, the, it, it's so weird, man. Cause you get all this information thrown at you and it's hard to kind of piece through. It's kind of a weird virus. I saw one yesterday in California where it said like, uh, a, a large amount of uh, their population has already been exposed because they had antibiotics uh, to the uh, coronavirus. Did you see that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. So I don't even know what to make of that. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I hope, man, I hope they're saying, hey, we can go back to work and, and, and uh, start living a normal life, man. There's nothing more I want to do than like go back and start doing jujitsu, bro. Um, and I hope, man, I hope it is not as bad. The death projections have went down drastically from, from what I initially saw, too, man. Um, they were saying, I don't even know, 500,000 deaths in the United States. And then I just looked not too long ago and it was like, which it's still high. It's like 160, 170. What sort of precautions are you taking right now? Because you're working at a, at a hospital. You come home. Right. So... Man, I work with some awesome people, man. These nurses, dude, I, I'm blown away, like, uh, like how much shit they go through and just keep showing up to work, man. Because essentially what happened, man, this one guy, so I'm living in my basement right now, but this guy I work with, uh, uh, Josh, uh, he moved into a house uh, here in O'Fallon. Like somebody just had some rental house and they said, hey, bro, you can live in it. And he asked me to come live in it. I've got a wife and two kids, you know, and I'm like, damn, man, I didn't want to bring, uh, I didn't want to bring that virus home because I'm literally, man, staring this thing in the face. Right. And I'm covering it. When I get home from work, uh, I strip down in the garage and go straight to the shower. And then if I come upstairs or go in like the common area, I'm wearing a mask, man. But, uh, back to Josh, he told me to, to move in. And that kind of like made me think, man, maybe I really got to start like worrying about not, um, about getting my, my family sick. And even though like the risk is really low, man, uh, being that you're younger and fairly healthy. Um, I just think about the fact that I've taken care of people my own age, right? that have a way shorter health history than me. I mentioned a, a couple that don't look healthy, but on the books, they didn't have any health history. Um, so I thought about that, man, and I just kind of did my own thing. But I think I think that dude, because the odds of me getting sick, I mean, there's definitely a potential. I could be a, an unlucky one that could get, get sick and die. But I would hate to think that... Um, you know, I got like either my kids or my wife uh, sick. Is that still a possibility? Sure, man. But I'm going to do everything I can in the meantime to make sure that they don't get sick. Um, so I moved down to my basement, bro, and I got a microwave and like a foreman grilling machine and a fridge down here. And it gets pretty lonely down here. I'm not going to lie, but. I try to stay outside most of the time. I lift a lot of weights in the garage and stuff if I'm not working. So it's not too bad, man. I got a bedroom down here, so I'm not complaining. I, I know. And as you look out, as you look out on the horizon, would you do that for another two months? Well, and that's the thing I've talked about 
um, is like, how, sus how sustainable is this, man? Like, how long can I do this for? Um, and I probably, man, if, if, if more patients kept coming in and it doesn't die down, uh, I could do it for, I could do it for two more months. That's not a problem. At the end of the day, I would do that, man. I, I just want to make sure, you know, what I would love is to be able to say, hey, you have uh, antibodies to this virus, you know, and then I can not worry so much about it. Um, but for the time being, man, I'm cool where I'm at. And I'm not the only one doing this, man. Like, I've got a, I've got a nurse uh, I work with. Her name is Sarah. She's awesome, bro. Um, these people, man, can stare like in the face of death and like have a heart rate of like 50 bro and just handle it with man. And like, and like there's, when there's a patient crashing, bro, you, there are so many precise steps you got to take and just be on point to do your job well. And just like seeing someone die in front of your eyes and bring them back to life is awesome, man. These people are really good at it. I include myself in that, but, uh, she lives anyways, back to Sarah. She lives out. Oh, uh, what do you call it? In a camper, bro, out in her uh, front yard. Hmm. And she's got her husband inside. And a lot of these people are better off than me. Like, <clears throat> you know, I'm I'm fairly healthy. My wife's fairly healthy. But, like, not a, that's not everybody's situation. A lot of people have very, uh, you know, people that manage and deal with chronic illnesses. Yeah, they're, nurses are people, too. They, they oh, have, yeah. They, they have mean, illnesses nurses, and... Dude, nurses definitely have, have illnesses. I mean, um, we're stressed to the to the gills. Like it's it's really common to see an unhealthy nurse, bro. I mean, I'm talking physical health. I'm talking mental health. That are all that is that is a real reality, particularly in the ICU that we we deal with. They say like the uh, uh, ICU nurses uh, PTSD rates are like as high as a a veteran of. Uh, you know, like the wars in the Middle East. Bro. Well, when like, I would come home from being a deckhand on the ship or being out in the Peace Corps, I would hang out with nurses because they partied, right? So, so like, you know, they, oh, yeah. they are blowing off steam. They are, if they've just gotten off like four days of working 12-hour nights oh, and then they oh, go out man. and party, like, and that's well, not because they're they healthy. <laughs> there's a reason they do that, man. You know, with any stressful job, you want to take yourself... You want to take yourself out of that stress, bro. That's why they're drinking. That's why I know a lot of, you know, I know a lot of nurses that got into drugs and crap like that. Um, a lot of nurses that are on anti-anxiety medicines. Uh, so let me ask you this, man. Like, you're this big old hard dude. Like, if, if you want, you can crack heads and you're a nurse, which people typically think of as like uh, white dress and, you know, uh I don't know, cute. And, uh, but I, like I said it to Steve, I'll say it to you. Like, I would want you to be one of my nurses. What the hell? Why did you decide to be a nurse? Oh, that's such a good question, bro. Uh, man, I can tell you the story if you want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I was, I've done a lot of different things, man, but really like in my twenties, uh, primarily was like, uh, dealing poker and this and that. And I was getting to the point, like anything you do for a while, I was just kind of, 
I was just kind of going through the motions. But uh, what what inspired me was uh, my wife was uh, she was having our, our our firstborn kid Lydia, who's now um, eight years old, right? And we went to a Memorial Hospital in Belleville, man, and she uh, she had it in her head. She watched a documentary about natural birth, like she's gonna go no anesthesia, bro, and just push this baby out, okay? And, dude, I was there, and I remember how many, I remember I clocked it, we were at the hospital for 52 hours. Oh! And I remember, because that's like my uh, basketball number in high school, it's like, I'm going to remember this, it's 52, right? So, um, anyways, bro, I remember being in there, and it was like, the the night before, it was early in the morning, I want to say, like one, two in the morning before the uh, morning she delivered, okay? And they actually delivered uh, Lydia with a, uh, it's like a suction cup. And by the way, at this time, I have zero medical knowledge, right? I know nothing. But they essentially like suction cup the baby's head to pull it out, right? And they're like, hey, we give you three tries, we don't get it out on the third try. We go do a C-section and just cut the baby out. I'm like, okay. So luckily the third time they got it out. I was like, oh, thank God, you know, 52 hours. And now we're on the third time. <laughs> try suction cut this baby. I, I had the biggest wave of euphoria after I saw that baby take a breath. Oh, man. You know that my wife is pregnant. So you're like describing a nightmare horror oh, show bro. for me. Thank you for this. Oh, bro. So <laughs> hers will be better, but let me backtrack though. So it's like one, two in the morning, man. And first of all, the whole time, man, I, the nurses there crushed it, dude. I'm just, I was just like blown away, like essentially about situations that I perceived as being extremely stressful, right? And they were just kind of able to handle it with, uh, with grace, dude. So, but at, it was like one, two in the morning, man. And my, I guess they like screw like a little thing into the baby's skull to monitor the heart. And my wife is at the point now, bro, you got to imagine. And she had this done like the night before. Okay. And she had a, uh, anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist come in and do an epidural, which is where they read this little catheter in the spinal column and give you this medication to basically numb everything from the waist down. Right. And that anesthesiologist, bro, he looked like Igor, man, like just like some old crusty dude. He's back there. He's fixing this thing. (laughs) And he's like, he's like, Oh, uh, I got some of the medicine like in somewhere where it shouldn't be. And he's like, you're going to have a very bad headache. He warned her essentially, but she got a little relief for the time being like, dude, if you saw my wife, bro, at this point, she had looked like she had run like three marathons and like had nothing left. I was just like, (laughs) Oh my God, how is she even alive? I thought I was looking at someone that was about to die, bro. So, um, anyways, she's going to kill me for telling me to tell this story. Anyways, Uh, anyway, she's sitting there, you know, and, uh, it's that morning and now all of a sudden, bro, she's got a headache, like the most painful headache you could ever think of. And I'm like, what the hell is going on at the same time that heart monitor stops. Okay. And then 
this stuff called meconium comes out of the vaginal canal, which is essentially like stool from the baby. Now, I don't know anything about this. What's going on? I thought my, I thought I was looking at my baby and it was liquefied. I don't know anything. And those two nurses do just dealt with it. And like, I'm sitting here like fumbling, freaking out, sweating bullets. And, and it was just no big deal. And like, after that, I thought to myself, man, those are some badass. Those are some badasses right there, bro. So that's kind of like got me thinking about it. And then uh, I finally took the leap i remember i was like wait that's around. a huge jump you're saying you you watch all this happen you're they are the cool under pressure they're in an intense situation it's one thing to respect those people but to decide that you want to go become one of them that's different yeah it was so i mean i so that was kind of the thing that set that idea off but like dude you just have those moments in life and I don't know how many I've had, but dude, I was just sitting there like on my computer. I don't even remember what I was doing. I think I was just looking for jobs, man. Cause I was just tired of uh, dealing poker and, and actually the poker, the place I was dealing poker at river city casino, like our business was down and I could kind of see the writing on the wall that it wasn't going to be around much longer. The poker room itself, which it actually did shut down like a year after I quit. But uh, anyways, uh, I was looking at jobs is what I kind of remember. I haven't thought about this for a long time. I was looking at jobs, like best jobs you could have, right? It was like top 100 best jobs you can have. It's like on Yahoo News or something stupid. And, and number two is like uh, CRNA, which is uh, basically a nurse that man, uh, deals with anesthesia, right? And you make good money and this and that. And so that was kind of like my ultimate goal. I was like, that'd be so awesome. And then it kind of like, man, maybe I should just do this nursing thing. So uh, I looked up the other kind of thing that really swayed me into it is they have one year um, nursing programs to get a bachelor's. If you already have a bachelor's degree, doesn't matter what your degree is in, you can get into kind of these fast track programs. So I applied for that. And fortunately, because I'm a male, it's pretty easy to get into a uh, nursing <laughs> so I got accepted man I just went for it bro but uh and did what is it what you thought it would be did you when you uh, imagine being a nurse did you sign up for coronavirus pandemic no but no man I didn't but I if you're gonna say did I think it I didn't know I didn't know what to expect I just kind of I'm just kind of like an oddball bro I'm like uh I'm not someone that will, if you would have asked me when I was younger, if I was going to be a nurse, I, I would say no, but I would say there's no way, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, so I'm kind of an outlier in that respect, but, uh, do, do what you expect in your first year of nursing as a nurse is particularly me. A lot of people get into nursing and have like what you would call a nurse tech experience or like a nurse assistant so you at least a minimum have uh, some level of knowledge about, hey, this person needs more oxygen or I know how to roll and maneuver patients in a bed. I didn't have any of that, bro. And I got my first job in an ICU 
And let me tell you, man, I got like five, six weeks orientation. They pulled me off early because we didn't have enough nurses. And you are scared to death, bro. It is for one, probably your first year as an ICU nurse. You are, I remember going to the bathroom, bro, and just like having like little mini panic attacks before work. Is that that freaking scared, man? But like, I remember going in there and like, I remember the first time I went to like a overview with the night nurses I was going to be working with. And I was like, these are the freaking, these people are the craziest. Like how they talk about things, like it's insane. Like, you know what I mean? Like they talk about just like being able to talk about death and, oh, man, did you see this and that? And I'm like, man, this stuff, I'm sitting here wide-eyed. Like this stuff's nuts, bro. I'm just trying to keep these people alive. I mean, like I I think there most people have never uh, seen an animal get killed, let alone watch a human being die. Or, or like struggle and uh, and and um, have as much trauma as what you see in an ICU. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I yeah, and I mean, I've look, I've pressed buttons on on pumps and stopped them, bro. And then within seconds, the patient dies. Like that's crazy too. You know what I'm saying? Like everything. A lot of times we'll get. It's kind of interesting. We'll get families that say, hey, I'm going to leave it uh, to God's will. If they're in the ICU and they've got all these medications going in this ventilator, it ceases. A lot of times it's not it's not in God's will. OK, <laughs> that's crazy. What what unfortunately happens is a lot of times these patients, at least from how I perceive it, is they're being tortured man just to keep them alive just to keep heart going it's actually really sad sometimes um and that's another thing a lot of uh and i'm trying not to get all my my wife told me don't get too dark and dreary man but uh that's a lot of times like what we have to put up with when you talk about like you know like you never want to do things that you're like morally conflicted with um you know, just because they say in Cool Hand Luke, man, just because it's your job doesn't make it make it right. So I feel like I do that a lot, unfortunately. Um, I'm veering off track from. No, this but, is this is but, amazing. Uh, I mean, I think it applies to every person. Yeah, man, it it, it it's crazy. Um, so if I could give like anybody advice bro out there about like end of life right because i see a lot of end of life and everybody that's alive right now is going to die and what happens is when someone declines and they're in say an icu is that person in that bed is no longer going to be able to make decisions for themselves right because they either have a breathing tube down or they had a stroke and they can't process things normally so um so somebody's going to have to make that decision you know in terms of their treatment um how to go forward and usually nobody's not usually oftentimes no one's been designated so all of a sudden it became become a fight between family members hey i don't want to 
put in a feeding tube or do a tracheostomy. Well, I do. What what doctors are going to do is they're never going to, if somebody is not on, if somebody wants a tracheostomy like the wife, but all the kids don't want a tracheostomy, a tracheostomy is cutting a hole right here. And now all of a sudden you have uh, a trach inserted and that's how you're going to breathe potentially for the rest of your life. It's not always the case. Um, but a lot of these people are at the end of their life anyways, bro. And at the end of your life, do you want a feeding tube? And do you want something in your neck when you don't even know, bro? You don't even know your name, okay? You don't know where you're at. Okay? You don't know what year it is. You can't eat anymore because all of, everything you eat goes down to your lungs. What are we trying to accomplish with sustaining life? The person in that bed doesn't want all this shit done. And unfortunately, they're no longer able to make those decisions. It's crazy, bro. So what I would recommend anybody, man, is to have a power of attorney that is somebody that's not even in your family. That's someone that knows medicine, man, and can kind of interpret information from a doctor or a nurse and make a good decision. But that's just my two cents on that. No, I'm 100% with you on that. And I think people – so, you know, when you start to – when you start a family and you start thinking about like, hey, I'm going to have a responsibility here. What am I – how am I going to want things to work if I can no longer earn or provide for my family? Like how do I want all this to work out? And all of a sudden you start answering questions and saying who's going to be the person to make that call when I'm not around – and uh, like, I can't believe it because I have a, I'm the middle child of seven, but I would absolutely never have imagined when I was growing up that I would want my older brother and my younger sister to be sitting there giving my wife advice. But my older brother knows like me really deeply and, and really like right. knows what's up with me. And my little sister, Alicia, is a nurse. And she is realistic on like what the cost of doing CPR is, like what what right. it looks like if you've cracked open ribs. And I want her to be able to right. say that to my wife. Like those are the two poles of of. Uh, but I want ultimately, I want my wife to make the decisions. Right. Yeah, man. Once you get to CPR, that's uh. The, uh that is that a is universal jujitsu at BJJ Lifestyle Academy. Where we are, where we train, there are a bunch of nurses, almost all of you ICU, and everybody has rib cracking stories from CPR. It's oh, like a yeah, regular yeah. thing that they talk about. They they say I have a uh, I shouldn't say they say, but uh, <laughs> I had a uh, doctor. Uh, we have a we have a device. Uh, it's called an Emma, and you can attach it uh, to the end of the endotracheal tube. Um, and it reads, and then you attach past that, you, uh, attach the bag that ventilates the patient. Uh, that's what you would do before you hook them up to the machine or if they needed like a little extra pump of oxygen, but it reads, uh, the CO2 level and the better your chest compressions, the higher that number will go. And they say a good, good, uh, CPR, you get like around 20. I was hitting 42. And the doctor's like, no way, this patient has to be alive if his CO2 level's that high. It's like, stop compressions. Sure is enough, no pulse. He comes up to me afterwards and he's like, he's like, I just want to say, those are the best chest compressions I've ever seen. <laughs> I was like, thanks, doc. <laughs> wow. 
What uh, is it? I think people have a skewed perspective because they've watched on TV, like pull out all the stops to, to make it to save me. And it's like, what they don't show is that it's not pretty. Ugly, bro. You're going to get, you're going to get your, uh, ribs crack. I mean, look, I've seen some really quick, good outcomes, usually like a quick defibrillation or defib where you're only like doing CPR for like 30 seconds. Those are best case scenarios. Um, if you do have CPR done, man, and it's something we can fix, you can have a good outcome. Um, the best, uh, the people that do the best are the ones that get CPR right when they arrest though, you know, so we call it like a witness to rest. If you've been down for like 10 minutes and now all of a sudden we get your pulse back, your brain is never going to be the same more than likely. So CPR has got its place where I don't think it has its place as someone that's 93 years old and can, can't even eat food anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of, it's kind of crazy how we approach that sometimes. So uh, I am, uh, I'm really grateful that you were willing to come on and share like what is going on with coronavirus? Because as a nurse, somebody that has been in, in the hospital has seen it to me, it's, it's a, it's a big thing to hear, you know, exactly from you. And, uh, so, but before we go, I'm, I'm wondering right now, I'm just, just trying to look up the date. What is today's date? It is April, uh, 22nd. It's Wednesday. What do you think the world will look like two weeks from today? Um, probably about the same, to be honest with you. Um, will you be living in your basement? <laughs> Oh man, I hope not, bro. It's it is uh it is a little boring down here. This that said though, I will say that uh ever since I can't do jujitsu, uh, I have been doing stuff around the house, bro, that you, I mean, power washing, landscaping, all sorts of stuff, man. Um it's amazing how much time I have when like my hobby doesn't like encompass like every waking moment and thought you know what i mean so that part's kind of in a way it's kind of cool because i can get some stuff done but it's dude, great I to have, have a balance like right like there are a lot of downsides to this thing but it's good to say all right what do i value why do i value it like and yeah. I, I tell you what like the camaraderie is what i miss like the oh I, yeah the whole bunch of stuff that got cut out for me that i don't really care about but Saturday open mats at the jujitsu where you oh, don't know who's showing up, but you're just going to roll. You get to a lesson in with coach and you're like, my whole week is better because there's of that. nothing. Better. Oh God. I feel so much better after I do that, man. I, I miss that stuff so much. And I, I hope it gets back to normal soon, man. I, I feel for coach. I know he's, he's wanting to, uh, He's wanting to start it back up and I do not blame him, bro, because I'm right there with him. I get, I get the best release, man. It is like, jujitsu is almost spiritual for me, like a good role. Like I feel like a million bucks, man. So I, uh, I have a friend named Dave and Dave <clears throat> does uh, training of special forces. Um, he teaches the martial arts. So like, if you wanted to know who knows how to do combative arts, Dave is your guy. And, uh, that's how we found coach 
it turns out, I don't know if you know about it, Coach, but I get to hear all these background things. And so Mike Rethmeyer in at uh, BJJ Lifestyle Academy is an old school G is what he said. He's like, he's from the old country, now comes to the United States and knows the secret magic like way to maneuver yeah. your body to to dominate other people. And on top of that, he's a mountain of a man. And so you've taken this guy and you've pulled him out of doing the one thing, his art, which is the crushing of other human beings. And I can't I can't wait to get back well, there. I'll tell you, like, and you're right, man. And I know it's hard on him, but but I know he had those hip surgeries, so I know he kind of knows already how to live, like, and all those hip issues he's had. He he knows how to live through not doing jujitsu. And I kind of dealt with the same thing, man. I had a I have I kind of have like this clotting disorder. I've had a few blood clots and things. Uh, and then I tore my Achilles too. So I understand uh, what it's like not to do, do jujitsu. But at the same time, um, I've had periods of time where I wasn't able to. Um, it sucks, but, but but hopefully we just got to hope for the best, man. Hopefully be back doing it i mean i don't really see a future in my life bro where i'm not doing jujitsu i mean already i'm essentially non-compliant with taking blood thinners just so i can go do jujitsu <laughs> like i'm essentially already putting my my life at risk to do something i love and uh i don't know if it's the smartest thing bro but that's that's how I that's how I roll, man. I I mean, I think that that's maybe like this silver lining is everybody should be looking at the things they were doing in life pre coronavirus and saying all the things that you don't feel are like actually connected to who you are. The things that like you ache, like I can hear how you ache for jujitsu, right? But all, all right. the other stuff that you were doing that you did for, out of obligation or because you thought you were supposed to or you thought you were having fun, just all it doesn't that matter. Is, Get rid of that matter, shit. Bro. It doesn't matter. That's what I want to get back to. I don't want to sit here and watch the news in my basement all day. Like it's toxic, bro. To me, like, like I just want to get back. Like I do my best, bro. When I stay busy, I go to work, you know, I'm lifting weights. I do jujitsu. I make some food. I go to bed and I just repeat that over and over and over and over, man. And like my well being and my mentality is, elevated to you know i kind of tripped up over that but well uh, i mean I just, i'm with you man like i i took coronavirus as like a, a weekend getaway or something where i don't have to get up on the same time and i can stay up late and it has taken me a long time to be like hey the reason you were sane and productive before coronavirus was because you were getting sleep, you were exercising, you were, you know, doing these things, you had a pattern. And now I'm treating or I was treating my days without a pattern. Now I have one and I'm sticking to it. Bang, 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 get things done in the day. Because it's that productivity, that progress forward that makes me feel like good to be alive. Right, right, right. A hundred percent, bro. A hundred percent. Well, man, I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for uh, giving up part of your uh, time off from work. I uh, I hope you stay safe. And anytime something changes with what's going on with you, let me know and we'll hop on and record something else. Cool, man. Hey, can I give a shout out? Sure, of course. Okay. 
shout out to to all my boys at BJJ Lifestyle Academy. Uh, love y'all. I know you want it. I, I know you want your names called by name. Uh, <laughs> throw a few out. Tony Bird, Morgan Freed. Um, who else? J- Gerard, Lance. Uh, I've seen Lance doing Gumby, a whole bunch of stuff Anthony on Instagram. Calderon. Oh, for real! All you guys, I know I'm missing you. Oh, Bart, aka House, Bart, uh, AKA the builder, Sheriff yeah. Bart. Um, man, all right, you, you, your time is up. <laughs> I, okay. I love you guys. All right, <laughs> hey, um, all right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. We'll see you yeah. later.